inspirational December 24, 2013, Charleston, South Carolina. 44-year-old Helen Williams was not about to let the holiday slip by without stocking up on some beer. When her husband came home without any beer because the stores were all closed because it was Christmas Eve, oh, Helen was not happy. Then she unleashed her fury on him. She allegedly beat and stabbed her husband with a ceramic squirrel because the stores were closed, meaning that there wouldn't be any beer to drink on Christmas. The victim was found on the floor covered in blood, and Williams apparently explained that he fell. The Charleston County Sheriff's Office wanted to know why Williams herself was also covered in blood. After that, the story got a little bit more, uh, came into focus. The man said that Williams attacked because he didn't bring any beer home, and Williams was charged with domestic violence for stabbing her man in the shoulder and chest with a ceramic squirrel. No one's really sure why she used the squirrel, and we also don't know if the squirrel was hurt in the incident or not either. So welcome to We All Go Little Mad Sometimes, a true crime and Assorted Oddities podcast with your host, Poncho. I have a face for podcast and a passion for true crime. So welcome to the Yuletide episode. It's my first episode. So grab a glass of eggnog and let's see what's on the docket today. I love old-timey radio shows. Dragnet, Gunsmoke, Tales of the Texas Rangers. The Tales of the Texas Rangers, episode 23, aired on Christmas Eve 1950, titled The Christmas Present, an authentic reenactment from the files of the Texas Rangers. These stories are based on fact, only names, dates, and places are fictitious for obvious reasons. The events themselves are a matter of record. Of course, as the announcers spewing all that, it gets you all ramped up and ready for a fantastic tale of the Texas Rangers. And this is a great story. This episode takes place in North Texas, 1931. And the show begins with a sidewalk Santa who steps into the bank to warm up, waiting on his afternoon replacement. Second Santa shows up and the pair turn around and rob the bank. As a result, the Texas Rangers get involved and the Rangers trail the Santa suits to a very poor man named Ross who lives in the outskirts of town, just trying to take care of his two kids the best he can during the Depression era. The Rangers feel like they have no choice but to arrest the man and put his two kids in the juvenile home here right before Christmas. Further investigation, the Rangers discover paint on the inside of the Santa suits leading him in a different direction, away from Ross. The lady had paid Ross to rent the suits, but the crafty rangers were able to have Ross identify the lady, and the rangers were able to get the woman to confess her knowledge of the robbery. 
turn on her boyfriend and his partner. And of course the rangers arrest the lady and her boyfriend and the partner. Ross and his kids, I guess, got to the rangers. And they arranged for a nice Christmas for Ross and his kids. And it's a very heartwarming Christmas story. Near about put tears in your eyes. But being a crew time junkie, looking into the original story, in spite of the radio show claiming authentic reenactment, the only thing the radio show and the true case had in common was a Santa suit and Texas. And that's about it. So let's carry on with the real story. We'll be in Cisco, Texas, December 23rd, 1927. The Santa Claus robbery happened on uh, December 23rd, 1927 in the central Texas town of Cisco. Marshall Ratliff dressed as Santa along with Henry Helms, Robert Hill, Alex Cons, and Lewis Davis, a relative of Helms, held up the First National Bank in Cisco. The robbery was one of the most infamous crimes in Texas and created the largest manhunt ever seen in the state. Eyewitness Boyce House wrote that this was the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing anything Billy the Kid or the James Boys ever figured. Say at the time it was certainly original. Nowadays mask wearing is pretty commonplace. However, I do see signs that say uh, mask wearing not permitted in this store, and I can't say I blame him for that. Uh, Marshall Ratliff was an ex-con just recently paroled for a bank robbery he committed in Valera, Texas. Cisco Police Chief G.E. Bit Bedford had tracked Ratliff down then and arrested him for it. Ratliff and his brother Lee received a 13-year sentence after serving one year of the sentence Ma Ferguson pardoned them. Governor Miriam Ma Ferguson pardoned over 100 convicts a month for a fee, I'm sure. More than 2,000 in her first term as governor. I'm sure some of these folks were innocent and had no business being in the penitentiary. Some, I'm sure, like Marshall Ratliff, were guilty as hell and had no business being out in free society. Another story goes that Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame was serving at East Ham Prison for auto theft, a 14-year sentence. The little man was having a bad time at this notoriously bad facility. So he had another inmate chop off his toes so he could get a change in his work detail. Apparently at the same time, Clyde's family had arranged a deal with Ma Ferguson and pardoned him six days later. Now, Marshall Ratliff and his brother Lee had gone back to Wichita Falls to plan their next robbery. During this time, the Texas Bankers Association offered a $5,000 reward for shooting bank robbers during the crime due to the uh, four or five banks being robbed on a daily basis and not for wounding the robbers, but for kill shots only. This opened up a whole new can of worms. 
So now, on top of bank robberies by robbers, we had unsavory characters manipulating holdups so that they could be there to shoot the perpetrator and collect a reward. So back in Wichita Falls, the planning began. However, Marshall's brother Lee was arrested again for burglary. Really, y'all, I can't make this stuff up. This is true. So, Marshall brings the two of his pals that he met while in Huntsville prison, and are Henry Helms, 31, and Robert Hill, 21. And another ex-con that was good with safes, as they planned things out, the safe hacker came down with the flu. So at this point, you think, okay, time for a new plan. You know, thinking, I know I can't get a job because I'm an ex-con and felon with a bank hold up on my name, but it's 1927. I'll just change my name and go to Houston and work on a shrimp boat. Anything, but no. So the trio recruited Lewis Davis, 22-year-old family man, and the offer of big money and one of Helm's relatives. And so Lee agreed as long as there was no shooting. So anyway, they got this fellow involved. Ratliff knowing he would be recognized in Cisco. He borrowed a Santa suit from uh, Mrs. Midge Tellet, who ran the boarding house that they stayed in in Wichita Falls. Now the fellow who arrested Ratliff for his other bank robbery was the chief of police in Cisco, Bit Bedford. So now, anyway, it's December 23rd and the four began their 200-mile trip to Cisco. How, you say? You guessed it. They stole a car in Wichita Falls and headed to Cisco. When the boys got to Cisco, Ratliff put on a Santa suit. They dropped him a few blocks from the bank. Ratliff played up the role nice. He played Santa very well. He walked down the main street in town. It was called Avenue D then smiling and talking with the kids and patting them on the head and answering questions. And the main street in Cisco was busy with people going about their business and the town was all decorated up for Christmas. He caught the attention of a six-year-old Francis Blazengame who tugged on her mama and she wanted to go follow Santa. Ratliff met up with his partners on the alleyway alongside of the bank. Now Santa entered the bank to joyful greetings from the bank tellers, but suddenly, Santa's demeanor had changed. Helms, Hill, and Davis all entered right in behind Santa, and brandished guns and called out to the tellers, Hands up! And Santa went through the swinging door and into the cashier's cage, opened the drawer, and under the counter removed the pistol from it, stuffing it into his suit. Now all four men were armed. Now Santa handed the bankers, a sack which they filled with $12,000. That's over 212000 in today's money. While Hill, Helms, and Davis kept the bank patrons under control, Santa forced one of the bank employees to open a vault where he put 150000 in notes, checks, and bonds and some valuables into the bag. As the boys were busying themselves with their pilfering shenanigans, Mrs. Blazingame and Francis, little six-year-old Francis, entered the bank to see Santa. Mrs. Blazingame immediately noticed that bad Santa was robbing the bank. 
She grabbed Francis and headed out the back door. Despite warnings from the looters that they would shoot, she ran out into the alleyway screaming and ran to the nearby police station and told Chief Binford. The chief immediately passed out guns to his officers, R.T. Reides and George Carmichael, and they headed to the bank. The chief positioned himself in the alley, Reddy's and Carmichael around the back of the bank. While this was happening outside, inside the bank, one of the robbers with an automatic weapon in each hand growled at the bookkeeper, Don't look at me. By now, Santa had filled his bag with the booty and exited the vault. Theory is that Hill noticed someone looking in the bank window fired at the observer and to his surprise folks outside started shooting inside Hill then shot up at the ceiling to let everyone know that they were armed a crowd had now gathered and they did the same thing soon the bank was inundated with bullets later police would count some 200 bullets that were shot into the building it was estimated that 100 citizens came out into the streets armed with guns acquired from local hardware stores and their own personal weapons. Once again, things looked really bad for the boys. They had to get out of the bank. The chief and another officer had teed up on the side door of the bank, laying down gunfire right into the door. Back inside the bank, the teller had been hit in the jaw and another customer had been hit in the leg. It was clear that things were going south fast. The robbers forced the 16 people in the bank outside with them for cover. The first few were hit by shooting citizens, including the bank president, Alex Spears, but most of the customers escaped. The robbers kept two little girls as hostages, Lorraine Comer, 12, and M.A. Roberts, 10, and they used them as shields. The most heartless and cowardly move, the robbers made their way to their blue sedan. Now piling into the blue Buick, the boys opened fire on the cops, hitting Bedford five times in the chest and Carmichael being mortally wounded as well. Bedford died as a result of his gunshots on Christmas Day after 25 years as a peace officer. Carmichael would succumb to his injuries on January 17th. Actually, Chief Bedford was shot as he was standing in the alleyway blocking their egress, and six civilians were also shot. In the Buick, some of the boys weren't doing so well. Ratliff was shot in the leg and the chin. Davis was severely wounded. Boys made their getaway, though. However, Officer Reddy's ran to the police station and grabbed the rifle and took off after the boys on foot soon being picked up by a civilian and continuing the pursuit. And now this gets just crazy. They began down the main street in Avenue D and realized they were almost out of gas. The drive from Wichita Falls was a good haul and they didn't stop to fill up the tank. Making their way out of town, being pursued by a mob now, one of their tires was shot out by one of the pursuers, almost out of gas with a flat tire. With a twinkle in his eye, Santa had an idea. Sitting at a stoplight was 14-year-old Woodrow Woody Wilson Harris. 
Woody was enjoying the day driving his parents and grandma around town, getting ready for Christmas. And what to his wandering eye should appear? A shot-up Santa and two overgrown elves with guns, yelling at him to get out of the car. The goons got the Harris family out of the car. They quickly loaded it with the loot and hostages and badly wounded Davis, and the rest hopped in the car and... Woody, good old Woody, when he got out of the car, took the keys with him. Now the boys got out of the car that they just jacked, jumped back into the Buick with no gas, flat tire, riddled with bullet holes, as the posse of townspeople and law enforcement firing at them, Robert Hill was hit in the transfer. Davis, now unconscious, was left behind in the Harris family's automobile. The three men and two young hostages drove away. When the posse reached the Harris family car, they found Davis near dead. And lo and behold, in all the confusion of the transfer under fire, the morons left the money bag too, 12,400 in cash and 150,000 in securities. Heading back out on the main road with two of the men shooting at the pursuing vehicles and throwing roofing nails out of the car in hopes of thwarting the pursuers. As they turned into a pasture, they were driving through cactus and mesquite and scrub oak. The blue bill could go no further and they come to a stop. They were now several miles out of town and continued on foot. They abandoned their car and their hostages now on foot. The trio managed to elude their pursuers. The next morning, now Saturday, December 24th, they stole another car and hid out in the woods outside of Cisco. But the boys still had a $5,000 bounty on them townspeople refused to give up the hunt. They chased the trio Saturday and Saturday night. After crashing their car, they carjacked another one and made the 17-year-old Carl Wiley drive them. When they drove off, Wiley's father fired a shotgun at him, hitting his own son. After hiding out all night with nothing to eat but oranges, and they didn't even offer their wounded chauffeur an orange, Ratliff, with a sudden flash of brilliance, decided to return to Cisco and hide in plain sight. So they released Wiley and stole another car. By now the trio was in bad shape. Injured, lack of food, sleet. It was icy, sleeting conditions. The trio was ambushed that next morning by Sheriff Foster in the little town of South Bend. They were trying to cross the Brasses River and they ended up having a shootout in the oil field. Deputy Sheriff Cy Bradford arrived during the melee with old Betsy, his double-barreled shotgun. He fired a shot, one of the bandits fell. He reloaded and shot again, another one fell, but got back up and limped on. Bradford again reloaded and fired. The third bandit dropped to his knees and got back up and staggered on and disappeared in and amongst the oil derricks. Ratliff was still down. Helms and Hill slithered into the wooded banks of the Brazos River, which offered excellent cover. Ratliff 
laying wounded, had at least six gunshot wounds, and was holding six pistols. But Santa was caught on Christmas Day. Texas Ranger Captain Tom Hickman pushed the search harder, not giving the two bandits time for rest. Despite air support, they could not find the two men. In the process, two searchers were wounded from accidentally discharging their weapons. That's now eight wounded, not including the bandits. However, the searchers picked up their trail, and the trackers could tell they were closing in on the bandits. Their footprints were getting closer together, and they were having to crawl up small inclines. The boys were in bad shape. They were finally apprehended on December 30th, 1927, seven days after the robbery. They were taken into custody without a fight. Hill had more than three pistols, and Helms had four. Helms, Hill, Ratliff survived their ordeal. Because they were brought in alive, and there were so many shooters at the bank and during the pursuit, it was impossible to determine who actually killed Davis. You know, Lewis Davis, the guy who agreed to participate as long as there was no gunfire. So, therefore, no reward was collected. The surviving gang members went to trial for their crimes, which had resulted in numerous civilian injuries, two dead policemen. Helm was identified as the shooter of Chief Bedford and Officer Carmichael and was given the death penalty. He was executed on September 6, 1929. Hill pleaded guilty to armed robbery, and after a, a weak insanity performance, he begged for mercy. He received a 99-year sentence, escaped a couple times, but was paroled in the mid-1940s to go on to live a productive life. Ratliff, however, the gang's not-so-bright Santa leader, was far more of a big ordeal. He was charged with robbery and abduction, having kidnapped the two girls. Young MMA Robertson had seen Ratliff without his mask and was able to make a positive ID on him. That conviction on January 27, 1928 gave him a 99-year sentence. A later trial, he was convicted with the death of Bedford, yet there was no eyewitnesses confirming that he actually shot anyone. However, the death of Bedford and Carmichael were a result of his actions, so he received a death sentence on March 30, 1928. Ratliff decided to plea insanity. It seems that it set in on the same day Helms was executed, but Ratliff awaiting a ruling on his appeal in the Eastland County Jail. He stopped eating and talking and forcing his jailers, Tom Jones and Pat Kilborn, to assist him. After serving him dinner one night, the two officers forgot to lock the cell door. Ratliff seemed to suddenly come out of his catatonic state, and he quickly came out of the cell and grabbed a pistol off a nearby desk and shot Jones multiple times before Kilborn subdued him. The people of Eastland County were less than pleased with Ratliff's actions. A crowd started growing outside the jail. Soon a thousand people were there. After learning of Jones' passing, 
they got more and more ornery. Now dark, the crowd of 2,000 stormed the jail and pinned Kilborn to the floor and took the cell keys. They freed Ratliff. They tied his hands, his feet, and dragged his ass outside and found a utility pole and strung him up. But the rope broke. But it didn't matter. They strung him up again. And Ratliff's body was found dead in the evening of November 19, 1929. They decided to use his corpse as a spectacle, displaying it in a furniture store window. No one was charged with his murder and don't think he drew much sympathy. So it's Christmas. Great time of the year for kids, your grandkids. There's always that magic question. Is there really a Santa Claus? Me, I happen to believe in Santa Claus. And there's a great old story about it. It dates all the way back to 1897. When little Virginia asked her dad if there was a Santa Claus. Virginia's dad deferred the question. And suggested that she write into one of New York's most prominent newspapers of the time, The Sun. Assuring her that, if you see it in the sun, it has to be so. So, little Virginia wrote, I am eight years old. Some of my friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. So please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? The response to Virginia's letter by one of the editors, Francis Forsillis Church, remains the most reprinted editorial to ever run in any newspaper in the English language, and found itself the subject of books, television series, a film. In his response, Church goes beyond the simple yes, of course, and she asked for the truth, and he gave it to her. The editor replied with, Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except what they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they are men's or children's or little. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect and ant in his intellect as compared with the boundless world about him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist, and you know that they abound and give you your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there was no Santa Claus? It would be as dreary as if there was no Virginias. 
There would be no childlike faith and no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except in the sense of sight. The eternal light with which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus. You might as well not believe in fairies. You might get your papa to hire men to watch all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus. But even if they did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa. But that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. But that's no proof that they're not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart a baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside, but there is a veil covering the unseen world which not the strongest man nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view the picture, the supernatural beauty and glory beyond. Is it real? Ah, Virginia, in all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus. Thank God he lives and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of childhood. So yeah, I believe in Santa Claus. I believe he lives in all of us if you let it. Of course, I ain't never seen a million dollars, and they say that's real, too, so. Yeah, so Merry Christmas, everybody. And you dads out there, press pause on the game. Go read to your kids for 15 minutes. It'll mean the world to them.